you remain standing with me and turn to 1 Corinthians 14. As was promised, we would return, and we do return now to our exposition of this great epistle to the Corinthians this morning. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. The one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. The one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, and producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in sounds, how will it be known what is played in the flute or in the harp? For if the bugle produces a distinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also, you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world. No kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Let's ask God's help to understand. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given to us your servants grace by confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and in the power of your divine majesty to worship the unity. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory. Our Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. It's going to be a good idea for us to take a moment and to catch ourselves up and reconnect with the context. And as I do that, I know that some of the things that I'm going to say here um, are probably uh, repetitious to you. But it's been a while, in all fairness, since we have been in the book of Corinthians, and this is a very important section to understand contextually so that we interpret the passage properly. So we should take just a minute to reconnect. And we're going to start that reconnecting with context in the very first words of chapter 14, verse 1, where the apostle commands the Corinthians to pursue love. He commands them to pursue love. And of course, what uh, Paul is referring to here is the love that he spoke about in chapter 13, which is the more excellent way, which he began to speak about at the end of chapter 12, verse 31. And obviously the kind of love here that he commands us to exert all of our soul, strength, mind, and effort to pursue is the love of self-sacrifice, the love of God in Christ. The love of God which is spoken of all throughout chapter 13 
as a kind of love, according to Linsky, that is to be lived out in the hard surroundings of a bad world and a faulty church. In other words, it's a self-determined effort to sacrifice yourself, your affections, your desires, your goals, your objectives for the opportunity to be a blessing to other people and to learn to live in church relationships particularly in such a way that is loving and self-sacrificing. And we examined all of that in chapter 13, realized uh, what a difficult but important uh, set of commands that Paul gives the church there. But now as you look at the next phrase, uh, you can see another connection to context where he says in chapter 14, verse 1, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Now that points us right back again to the end of chapter 12, verse 31, where Paul commanded the church in the very first part of the verse, to earnestly desire the greater gifts. So it's almost as if we've already said this before. Uh, Paul could have jumped from 1231 to the second phrase in uh, 1 Corinthians 14 and not have skipped a beat at all. It's as if chapter 13 is sort of a large parenthesis. But, but the parenthesis is important because the Apostle Paul is saying uh, that's the context in which we are to pursue these gifts. And that is the context in which the gifts are to be ministered for the help and the edification of others. If you don't have this important context, if you don't have this, uh, this important aside here of the apostle about love, it's too easy to use these gifts for self-gain. And that's what Paul, uh, the apostle Paul is having to rebuke here. Uh, those who would use these spiritual gifts uh, for self-exaltation. That's exactly what was happening. We've, we have noticed this a number of times, particularly uh, with the tongue speakers in Corinth. Uh, they seem to have just uh, an extra fascination with tongues, believing that somehow by the babbling in tongues and the use of tongues, uh, that they were exalting themselves, they were having heightened spiritual experiences that made them better people, more useful to the life of the church, and so forth and so on. So before Paul launches into an explanation and a clarification of that, he says, this is the context that you absolutely must grasp. This context of loving, self-sacrificially, your brothers and sisters... In Christ. Within that context, Paul says, now, okay, you pursue the spiritual gifts, the greater spiritual gifts. And in chapter 14, he clarifies what those greater spiritual gifts are. And the first greater spiritual gift, of course, is prophecy. And the second greater spiritual gift is interpretation of tongues. Very interesting that Paul doesn't highlight an accent. Tongues, it's interpretation of tongues that is the greater spiritual gift. And you can already see that at the end of verse 5. When he says, uh, I wish that you all would speak in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. He says, greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets the tongue. See, there Paul is uh, equating their usefulness for edification within the church only if the tongues are interpreted. If they are not interpreted, they are useless. So Paul launches into this uh, explanation of the role and the purpose of these spiritual gifts, identifying what they are. And this morning what we want to think about is the primacy of prophecy. The primacy of prophecy within the church. And you can see that uh, in the relationship of verses 1 and 2. Right after Paul says, 
desire earnestly spiritual gifts. He says, but especially that you may prophesy. He doesn't say that about any other gifts in the chapter. He says, especially, above all, that you would prophesy. And then he goes on now in verse 2 to unfold that. He says, for. Now that for is important. The for is going on to give the reason for why they should desire, above all, this capacity to prophesy. He says, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. You see, the key to this, and we'll have to come back to it, and we'll go over this uh, repeatedly in our message this morning. The key to understanding this is that Paul is saying the reason why prophecy has the primacy is because the person that speaks in tongues doesn't produce understanding. Unless there's an interpreter there to explain the interpretation of the tongue, the tongue is absolutely useless to those who hear. So Paul sets that forth as the primacy. The other thing that I want to set up here in the introduction as we work our way into this chapter is that Paul is referring to a context of public worship. Paul is clearly referring to a context of public worship for the use of these gifts. And I have to accent that because one of the ways to get around this passage by many charismatics today is to say, oh, well, prophecy uh, was obviously for the worship assembly. It could have been used outside of it. But tongues especially uh, continue today, but for private edification. Privately, we use these tongues. And even though we may not understand what in the world it is we're saying, if we're in our prayer closet and we use these privately, uh, we will be blessed. No. All of Paul's instructions in chapter 14 pertain to the public worship assembly. And you can see that very clearly if you look at verse 19. Perhaps it's not as clear there as we'll see in the following verses. But he says, however, in the church... I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct all others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now that word in the church is obviously referring to public worship. He said, I'd rather speak five uh, known words with my mind that is intellectually and rationally and intelligibly within the context of worship than 10,000 that nobody understands. But if that's not clear enough, all you have to do is look at verse 23, which makes it clear it's a worship assembly. He says, therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? Now, you can't miss the fact that it's a public worship assembly there, right? He says it in the church assemble assembly when everybody assembles together. Verse 26 is the same. He says, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? So clearly, all of the instructions in chapter 14 about the role of prophecy and tongues are to be interpreted within the context of their role and function within public worship. And so what we want to do, first of all, this morning as we begin to Uh, grab hold of in our understanding what Paul is speaking of in 1 Corinthians 14 is we want to note this morning the primacy of prophecy in public worship. The primacy of prophecy in public worship. And we want to begin uh, with unfolding that point by noticing the contrast between prophecy and tongues. The contrast between prophecy and tongues. Prophecy is the ability to... uh, Utter inspire words. 
Prophecy is the ability to utter or proclaim infallible, inerrant, divine words. That's all prophecy is. It doesn't have to refer to uh, forecasting and predicting the future. Sometimes prophecy does that. But a vast section and chunk of prophecy in the scriptures is simply about declaring God's will. It's simply a series of exhortations. It often includes uh, uh, promises of the gospel and so forth. But it doesn't always have to be predicting some future event. It is simply a declaration and unfolding of the mind and will of God for the covenant people. So that's what prophecy is. Now contrast that to tongues. And, And to be fair with us all here this morning, we have to spend some time with this point. Uh, Because really, when you think of 1 Corinthians, most likely what you think of is this whole business of charismatic gifts and languages and tongues and stuff, okay? So it would be completely unfair of you for me to take you through 13 chapters of 1 Corinthians and not really get into this issue very carefully. So I, I have to do that. We'll talk about tongues some more in future sermons as we work our way through the passage. But we need to get a handle on what these are. And the fact of the matter is, there are three... Basically, you could reduce all interpretations of what tongues are to three different options, okay? So if you're keeping track on your scorecard, the first option is ecstatic utterances. Ecstatic utterances. You say, what is that? Well, William Barclay tells us ecstatic utterances are, especially when that kind of language is used to describe or refer to tongues, is this. He says, it's someone falling into a state of ecstasy and pouring out a torrent of unintelligible sounds in no known language. Now that still might sound like dictionary terminology, but basically it's saying this. Your mind goes to some irrational uh, state And what comes out of your mouth has nothing to do between the connection between your brain and your tongue. And everything that comes out in terms of audible sounds is nothing but non-rational, unintelligible, non-linguistic conversation or uh, words or tones. That's all that's meant here with this ecstatic... It's just simply babble. It has no coherency to it at all. And basically, the kind of people who hold this particular interpretation of tongues will say, uh, no one who is listening to that has any clue what is being said. When somebody hears that, when a normal human being hears that, they think it's gibberish. And the reason why they think it's gibberish is because there is no one, no nation, no tongue, no tribe, no small community anywhere on the face of the earth which speaks that language. It's just ecstatic utterance. And the only way to understand that is if you have somebody else who is there, who is listening, who has a pair of divinely fitted ears that can understand that and then put that into language so somebody can understand it. That's the ecstatic utterance interpretation. Now, it can be defended at length by by scholars, and I don't want to underestimate the fact that people put forward some pretty sophisticated arguments for that position. But that's what they believe in a nutshell. It's just gibberish. But it's okay because God, uh, God unravels the gibberish. The other interpretation, uh, before we get to the proper one, the biblical one, is that tongues are angelic languages. 
Tongues are angelic languages. And you say, well, where would you come up with such an idea? Well, the answer is in verse 1 of chapter 13. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love. You follow? The tongues of men and angels, and people say, aha, that's the key to understanding chapter 14. Is that Paul is going to talk about tongues of angels. And you say, well, what are tongues of angels? Well, we don't know. And basically, I think the only reason why anybody holds this interpretation is because they realize that the ecstatic utterance interpretation has no basis at all. That's basically why. Just to be honest with you and to cut to the chase, it's basically people who have evaluated the entire argument for the gibberish interpretation and say, that's ridiculous. So they say, aha, we do have this reference to tongues of angels, so that's probably what Paul is talking about. You say, okay, we'll go back to chapter 12, verse 10, where Paul first brings this up, and he talks about uh, miracles and prophecy and distinguishing of spirits, and then he says, kinds of tongues. And you have to say that there's only two ways to interpret that. Tongues either means languages, human languages, and that there are multiple human languages, or he's referring to angelic languages, and that there are all kinds of angelic languages. Well, we know that there are all kinds of human languages, but to say that there are all kinds of angelic languages... Since nowhere in the Bible anywhere references it, we would have to say that position is based on complete speculation and is totally beyond any kind of verification. We have no help from the rest of Scripture to figure that out. So I guess you could argue that Paul is talking about angelic languages here and there's nowhere in the Bible that gives you any help to understand what that means. You can hold that position. But it doesn't make any sense to, especially when you have the other option. And that brings me to the option that I want to defend this morning, which is the historic reformed uh, uh, position, which is the, the historic position of the church, actually. And that when Paul uses the word here, tongues, one who speaks in a tongue, he's referring to foreign language. He is referring to the communication of divine truth in a foreign language. And here's the difference with this position. It's basically saying this, that the person who is communicating that divine truth in a foreign tongue has never studied that before, and so he has been given a supernatural ability to speak a language that person has never studied before in their life. You say, okay, well that's a tall order to prove that too. I say, yeah, but the Word of God tells us it happens, so that's not... I'll accept that. But that's the basic position right there. A supernatural capacity to speak the gospel in a foreign language that you've never under, that you've never studied before and that you yourself don't understand. Which makes perfect sense out of verse 2, by the way, because it says when he speaks this way, he doesn't even understand. Now, sometimes the people who spoke in that uh, foreign language were also given the gift of interpretation, so they did. But not in every case. But why would we hold such a position? Well, the first reason why we would hold such a position is because it makes perfect sense within light of the culture and geography of Corinth. The geography is what drives the culture. 
Corinth is a city which is located on a very slim isthmus, a land bridge between uh, northern Greece and southern Greece, and is flanked on both sides with ocean, which makes it a perfect place for what? Ships. And wherever you have ships and harbors, you have trade. And wherever you have ships and harbor and trade, you have an international community which is precisely what Corinth was, there were myriads of different language groups resident within Corinth at the time the Apostle Paul was preaching there. So it makes perfect sense if you think about that, that Paul is describing a situation in 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll see this in subsequent message, that it's very likely that there were people who were coming into the worship assemblies in the Corinthian churches who didn't understand a word of Greek, which was the spoken language and recognized language in the city, and the gospel was proclaimed to them, and the truth of God's word was proclaimed to them for edification by people who were supernaturally given the ability to speak in the native language of that person. The second reason why we would hold this position, and I know this is not fully authoritative yet, but there are good solid reasons, and that is that this is precisely the way the church fathers, through the 4th century, to a man understood this. That's pretty important, that all of the Greek-speaking church fathers, when they read this passage, all believed that what Paul was talking about was a supernatural ability to communicate the gospel in a language that they had never understood before. There was an article that was published not too uh, long ago by an ancient church history scholar who concluded after studying Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Hegemonius, Gregory of Nazianzen, Ambrioster, Chrysostom, Augustine, Leo the Great, Tertullian and Origen, and other leading lights among the fathers. He analyzed their commentaries on Acts 2 and Acts chapter, or rather 1 Corinthians 14, and basically he concluded this, that the fathers, all of them, all of what we would call the orthodox fathers, the ones that were not professing truths that were heretical about the Trinity, all of those agreed that the tongues of Acts 2 are the very tongues of 1 Corinthians 14, And the second thing they all agreed on was that the ability to speak in this foreign tongue was a supernatural gift, and the person who was able to do it never studied the language. They all held that view. So you say, well, that's a pretty good reason to believe that. Uh, But this morning, I want us to put our, our, our belief on a stronger footing than common sense reasons. I want us to go back to Acts chapter 2 and work our way back to 1 Corinthians 14 so that we're clear about the fact that what Paul refers to here in 1 Corinthians is the very same phenomena of tongue speaking that is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. Now I promise this won't take us very long, but again, this is one of the main reasons why we would be interested in studying the book of Corinthians is to figure this out. So I hope you turn with me in your Bibles and make sure for yourselves you're understanding why the Reformed Church holds that speaking in tongues is not gibberish or language of angels, but is actually the communication of the gospel in a foreign language. Acts chapter 2 verse 4, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. They spoke with other tongues. 
The word there for tongues is glossa. Almost always refers to human language, okay? That's very important. They were able to speak with other tongues. Who are the people who are speaking? They're disciples. What is the primary language of the disciples? Aramaic. So it says they spoke with other tongues. What does that mean? It means they spoke with other languages. Well, look at verse 6. Or verse 5 is already preparing us for verse 6. It says, Now there were in Jew, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now look at verse 6. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Now think about that. People from all of the nations under heaven. Now we can grant that that's hyperbole. That's okay. But what it's saying is that there were a lot of people there who didn't speak Aramaic. That's basically uh, what Luke is saying in a nutshell. There were all kinds of people there who didn't speak that language. And yet, what does Luke tell us? They were bewildered because each one of them, for their separate language units, was hearing the gospel proclaimed to them in a way they could understand it. They marveled at this, you see. They marveled at that. Well, verse 8 goes on to say, how is it that we each hear them in our own language? And the word there, language, is dialect. Dialect. We get our word dialect from the Greek word here, dialectos. Which means a form of speech characteristic of a nation or region. That's what they're saying. They're saying, how can it be that that we understand this? And and just to get a grasp on the variety of language groups that were there, well, you can see for yourself in verses 9 and following. Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya, around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues. It's an open and shut case. Really, it's an open and shut case from Acts chapter 2. And and to be fair, a lot of Pentecostals and Charismatics say, alright, you got us on that passage. How about the others? Well, if you turn to Acts chapter 10, you're going to find the very same language. The very same language. Look at verse 45 of chapter 10. You can back up to 44. While Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. The Holy Spirit fell. That's key. Verse 45. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Also what? In comparison to who? Well, of course, Luke is the author of Acts, and he's thinking back to Pentecost, where he has recorded the miracle of the disciples, once the Spirit fell upon them, communicating in tongues, that is, speaking in foreign languages to others so that they could understand. Look at verse 46. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Very same word, Glosa is used here as is used back in Acts chapter 2. So Luke intentionally recalls the historical situation 
in order to show the continuity of the experience, and Luke uses the very same vocabulary to underscore the continuity of their experience. So we'd have to say, if we're interpreting the scripture according to any rational, normal means of interpretation, that the tongues of Acts 10 are the same of tongues of Acts 2. We'll go to Acts chapter 19. The only other instance of tongue speaking in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19. We're told in verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Again, there is a continuity in the experience of the tongue speaking. The Holy Spirit fell, as in the other case. And when that happened, they spoke in glossaw tongues, the same vocabulary. So what you have in each one of these scenes, Luke is showing the falling of the Holy Spirit and the effect of the falling of the Holy Spirit upon disciples. They spoke in tongues and he uses the same language to show the common experience in each case. Now, uh, that seems to me an open and shut case that any unbiased person who sat and listened to that evidence would say, okay, Acts, they're talking about foreign languages. And the fact is, just to be fair... There's a whole spectrum of charismatic uh, scholars who would say, yeah, the, the, the linguistic evidence is overwhelming. But they say, when you come to 1 Corinthians, now come back with me. Let's go to chapter 12, for instance. They say, when you come back to 1 Corinthians, it's a whole new ballgame. And uh, that's what we want to challenge, that the experience of speaking in tongues in Corinthians is the very same one that's described in the book of Acts. And it was a communication of the gospel in a foreign language that that speaker had never studied. Now, one of my arguments for that is simply this. Who wrote Acts? Luke. Who was with Paul when he was in Corinth? Luke. Who was with Paul when he wrote the book of Corinthians to the Corinthian church? Luke. Now, it would be very odd if that person was with Paul in all these experiences, obviously talked to Paul about what was going on. It would be very odd if he would explain an entirely different phenomena with the very same language. Isn't it? Isn't it entirely odd that he would explain entirely different phenomena with the same language that Paul does here? Now, by the way, I said, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12.10, and we'll go forward to chapter 14. But, but here, uh, the apostle, again, is speaking about tongues, and he talks about, towards the end of the verse, he says, there are various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. There's some things I want to note here. First of all, guess what the word for tongues is? Glossa, the very same term that is used all throughout Acts to referring to the phenomena of communicating the gospel in a foreign language. That's number one. Number two, that word for tongues is used in every other case in Paul's writings here in 1 Corinthians about the use of tongues. So it's not like Paul has changed up his language, which would signal to us he's speaking about something different. No. But then he says there are kinds of of tongues. There are different kinds of tongues. Well, if tongues are foreign languages, that makes perfect sense because we know there are various kinds of foreign language. 
But if tongues are just gibberish, why would you need different kinds of gibberish? Think about it. If tongues are simply gibberish, there's no need for different kinds of gibberish. There's no linguistic content anything being said anyway. It doesn't matter if it's um shamagama lama shudabada hundai or whatever untie my bow tie. It doesn't matter. It's all gibberish. But the next phrase here is very important because he says in verse 10 to another, the interpretation of tongues. The interpretation of tongues. Now, this is what we have to be uh, clear about, is what does that word mean? Well, the fact of the matter is, every single time that word for interpretation in the Greek is used in the New Testament, it always means to translate a foreign language. It always means to translate a foreign language. We have no other examples of it being used differently in Greek. So, the word tongues has been used multiple times to refer to various foreign languages. It's used in verse 10, various kinds of tongues, uh, various kinds of languages, which triggers in our thinking foreign languages. Not surprising then, interpretation of tongues would have to do with the translation of a foreign language into a receptor. So, that makes good sense to us so far. Well, what about beyond that? Well, you have uh, in chapter 14, verse 21. Chapter 14, verse 21. And it doesn't come out here uh, in our translation the same way. But it says, in the law it is written, men of strange tongues or other tongues. Okay? That phrase, strange tongues or other tongues, is precisely in the Greek the very same language that's used in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, which says the disciples spoke in other tongues. Which means that there's a similarity. There's a similarity or there's a commonness to the phenomenon being described. Now, if you just come back to chapter 14, and, and I realize this has been a lot, but it's okay because this is what we wanted to know, right? We wanted to know that the Reformed Church wasn't just ducking 1 Corinthians 14 because we didn't have a good answer. Probably we're ducking it because we realized there's a very clear answer for it. There's no ducking at all. It's it's foreign languages. But but look at through all the examples that are given now. uh, In in verse 7 and following. The, The whole point of these examples is to say, for instance, the flute or the harp... Um, producing a sound. It says, if they don't produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played in the flute or in the harp? It's obviously saying, it's implying that there is a language to music. There's a set of notation and so forth that when the the, the flute or the guitar or whatever, the harp strikes a certain uh, place, and I'm not a musician, so don't ask me to describe this in any kind of detail because I'll foul it up. But but obviously, it's referring to the notion that there is sort of a language and a coherency to the kinds of sounds that come out of these things, and they're predictable. And if they don't do that, it just makes no sense to anybody if they're not educated in musical notation and sounds. The same thing is true in verse 8, the bugle producing a distinct sound who will prepare himself for battle. 
uh, clarity. The person who's hearing it has to understand it. This is the whole point. And then chapter, uh, verses 10 and 11 talks about there being many kinds of languages in the world. And none are without meaning. Very clear. We're moving in the territory of the use of foreign languages. So what's being done here, and this is our bottom line. Paul is contrasting prophecy with tongues. And he's saying the speaking in tongues is the speaking of a foreign language. Now, the point that he's trying to make here is this. If you're sitting in a room full of Greek-speaking people, and there's one person that doesn't speak Greek, and the main speaker spends his entire time uh, speaking Arabic to this person, no one in the room understands, because they all speak Greek. And when no one understands what happens, no one profits. No one gets a thing out of it, because they don't understand Arabic. And Paul is referring to a situation where there are some of these tongue speakers who just cannot seem to control themselves and just start babbling out loud in these other foreign languages and most of the people there just can't make heads or tails of what's being said. So it's not only chaotic, but it's unintelligible. That's the point. He says when somebody speaks in prophecy, they receive a message in Greek, prophetically, they communicate it in Greek, and the people who are there who speak Greek understand it. And so he says the reason why prophecy is superior is not because it has a different content. They have the same content. It's all divine, special, inspired revelation from God. It's all infallible. It's all authoritative. It's not like what comes through tongues is less authoritative because it has to be translated into the receptor language. It's just that one is understandable. And if you're saying things that are completely understandable in a context, unable to be understood in the context of worship, no one is blessed. Now that leads us to our second point. Why is then prophecy primary? Why is prophecy primary? Well, we can see it. there is a primacy to prophecy here. Verse 5, he says, I would that you all even more would prophesy. Uh, clearly, the whole thrust of the subsequent illustrations has prophecy in view. Uh, clarity is what is the issue. But now we get into the reason why it's Primary. Well, look at verse 3. The reason why prophecy is primary. Verse 3 says, One who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Verse 4. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Notice the emphatic contrast there. In verse 4, you have on the one hand the, peop- the person who speaks uh, in prophecy edifies the entire church. Whereas the person who speaks in a tongue, in a foreign language, and doesn't translate it, what does he say? He's not speaking to anybody. He's not edifying. He's not doing anything that's of any use to anybody who's there. Now, this is accented very powerfully in the grammar because this verse uh, front loads these terms and it says, the church he edifies. And then the other part of the contrast says, himself he edifies. 
Now, that emphatic way of pointing it out is to say, it's the whole church. And, and Paul is saying, this is what we have to keep an eye on when we gather for worship. Not just one or two people who are sitting here on the side. He's saying it's the entire church that we have to think of. And what is it that is most likely to bless the most amount of people? What's this prophecy? Notice what happens when people prophesy. He says they are edified. That word edify runs like a thread throughout verses 1 through 12. Edify, it comes up over and over and over again. What does it mean? Well, if you looked up that word edify in a dictionary, you'd basically find that it means to build up. It's a construction term. It is literally applied to building up a building one stone upon another. Uh, The New Testament writers uh, took it up in numerous occasions uh, to apply it to the building up of a Christian in their spiritual uh, their spiritual maturity. Uh, there's different ways it's used and employed, uh, but basically I think uh, Calvin has a very useful uh, definition of this word. Here's how he puts it. He said, To speak to edification is to speak what contains doctrine fitted to edify. He says, for I understand this term to mean doctrine by which we are trained to piety, to faith, to worship, to the fear of God, and to the duties of holiness and righteousness. Now that helps us get our hands on this term. Basically what Calvin is saying, and I think it's a thoroughly justifiable definition, he's saying it is the proclamation of truth for the purpose of training people to grow up in spiritual maturity, to grow up in the fear of the Lord, to grow up in a desire for true worship, and to build people up so that they can actually live their life according to God's commands. That's what he's saying. That's what edify is. And we would have to do a whole word study throughout the New Testament, which I don't think is necessary for us. I think we should agree on that. It's not a disputed idea. It's to teach doctrine that helps people grow into maturity and to lead a life of faith and obedience to Christ. Now Paul says that's what prophesying does. It edifies and it builds up the entire church. He says tongues, speaking in foreign languages that people don't understand. He said... Big waste of time. Because no one understands. And you say, okay, great. I'm really glad that I understand that tongues means foreign languages. And that I have an answer I can give to my charismatic friend. But what in the world does this have to do with us? After all, and I haven't made my case yet, but after all, we don't believe in the continuation of tongues or prophecy. We're going to get to that message and explain why we don't. But, but we're going to say this morning, what difference does it make? I, I can be a lifeline for a friend or something who's talking to somebody and fig, trying to figure out what tongues or prophecy means when they're having a conversation with somebody else. And I can say, well, you know what? I know what that means because I've been through Acts uh, 2 and 10 and 19 and I know what glossa means. And I know all these different ideas. No, that, that's... There's something for us in this. And I want to see if I can pull out two principles by way of application as we work our way to conclusion this morning. Even though we don't believe that prophecy and tongues continue uh, within the context of church, there are principles which undergird Paul's proclamation here. 
that have enduring value for us. And that is, first of all, uh, Christian worship must edify. Now that's, a, that's a big, giant idea that stands behind uh, Paul's entire motivation to correct the Corinthians. In a sense, you could say, what difference does it make if uh, these unruly Corinthians act like unruly Corinthians? This is just how they are. And they'll grow up and mature and get over it one of these days. No, Paul wasn't content with that answer because worship was at stake. And uh, the way Paul thinks of worship and the way the biblical writers think of worship and the whole way the Bible speaks of worship is that the way we worship really matters. Because it's not for us, first of all, it's for God. It's not about our preferences or our desires or our needs or our wants or our, our felt needs. It's all about God. And when we worship God obediently and correctly, it has a benefit for us. We are built up. Now we'll have to connect those ideas more coherently when we get to the latter half of the chapter. But what Paul is clearly saying in this section is that Christian worship must aim at edification. It must aim to build you up in faith. Worship must aim to build you up in the fear of the Lord. Christian worship must aim to build you up in the desire and the understanding for true worship. And Christian worship must build you up in your strength and desire to obey God and His commandments. And the way it does that is by speaking the truth clearly. That is the entire point here. Paul is aiming at edification. He says the way you edify people is you speak God's word clearly and accurately. That's why we do church like we do. That is why the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacrament dominate the church when it meets for worship. Because that's how you are built up. Through the uh, verbal proclamation of the word... And then through the visual proclamation of the word, which is the sacrament. And that's why these things take the central place in our worship. It's not because we're following old, outdated, way past cutting edge ways of worship. That's kind of how people would look at us sometimes. I I got to admit that. That people sometimes seem to think that Reformed people worship the way they do because they don't have creativity or imagination. Now, that's possibly true. It certainly is in my case. Zero. But that's not the reason why we do this. Oh, we don't do this because we worship 16th century culture and say, oh, they got it right there at the high Renaissance culture and we should just always make sure that we preserve that. No, we do it because it's biblical. And because it's biblical, it edifies. I can't help, as I think about that, without bringing in a contrast. I was reading through uh, one of my persuasion textbooks at the end of the semester in preparation for end of the semester project. And I came across, uh, in, in this secular textbook on persuasion, an example uh, what the author considered an unethical use of persuasion. Well, it turned out to be his example was a megachurch and the way they promoted themselves. 
And as I began to listen to his explanation, he basically said, they're not telling people who they are, they're not telling them what they believe in, and they're using deceptive tricks to get them to come there in the first place. And I thought, wow, that's really an indictment. This guy's not even a believer. So I went to look for this church and the kinds of things uh, that I might learn about it to see whether they're consistent with this. And, And this is what I read. Out of the whole range of completely ridiculous ideas... I'm told uh, one of the examples that I read about is a flyer they sent to the whole community, inviting them to church, saying, you think your church is boring and judgmental and all they want is your money? Well, come to our church and you'll hear a rockin' band and a positive, relevant message, and we won't beg for your money. Another example is a billboard used to uh, advertise the church, saying, isn't it time you laughed again? Another example comes from uh, a set of interviews done by one of the authors of a piece about the church, where he went on asking people why they were there and what brought them there. And he said this, ask people at this church what first brought them to the church, and you will almost never hear a mention of God. And then finally, this is another indicting blow. Most Christians who say they've been changed by this church attribute it not to the sermons, but to the small groups where they share their deepest hopes and hurts. So just piece that together for a second, and you see it has nothing to do with edification. They have a rock and band, positive messages, not much about God, sermons won't do much for you spiritually, and the things that really help you are therapy. Sharing deepest hopes and hurts. And you say, that doesn't sound like religion, let alone Christianity. You see, there aren't any shortcuts to edification as you read Paul, and as you read the epistles, and you read the Bible. There aren't any shortcuts. What people need to hear is the truth, the proclamation of the truth, over and over and over and over again. Not motivational messages, not whipped up emotions, not powerful audio-visual presentations, not dramas, not any of the crazy things that predominate so much of the life and the worship of the church today. What people need is the truth. That's what Paul is saying here. I don't want you using these tongues because nobody understands anything. What I want you to do is I want you to hear the proclamation of God's Word. And I want to be clear. So that people walk away understanding what God said, and what God wants, and what God desires, what God is pleased with. So the first application is that what Paul is teaching us here with this repetition uh, of uh, referring to edification and, and, and in the context of, a, context of explaining the primacy of prophecy is because prophecy promotes edification. It just builds people up in the fear of the Lord because they hear God speak to them about His will and His word and His ways. The other thing that emerges out of here as a point of application, we conclude with this, is intelligibility. Intelligible. Worship must be intelligible. That means it must be understandable. That is a primary reason why Paul says, again, if you look at the relationship of verse 1 to verse 2, primary reason why he says prophecy is better than tongues. That is, 
speaking in foreign languages that other people don't understand is because nobody understands it if they don't know that language. But if they hear prophecy, which is in their own language, they grow because it's intelligible. You know, it's not by accident that the, uh, the reformers uh, would appeal to 1 Corinthians 14 to rebuke the Roman Catholic Church for using only Latin in the liturgy of the church when nobody understood it. And they would always talk about the priest standing up, muttering and peeping, and nobody had a clue what he was saying. It was because true. Nobody knew. All they could see is the person up front waving incense, all different kinds of things going on, and nobody had a clue, theologically, let alone the words that were even coming out. They just knew that they were supposed to do certain things at certain times, and that was it. Intelligibility is critical to our worship. Intelligibility. That means that everything that we do in worship must be intelligible to you. You must understand why we do it. You know, you can grow up in a Reformed church sometime and have no clue what is going on. It seems like you sit down and you stand up and you do this and you read that and you say this and you close your eyes here, you bow your head there, you listen now. I mean, you feel like, what in the world are we doing? That's not intelligible worship. And if it's not understandable to the people that do it, they have no clue and they're not being benefited by it. Our worship must be intelligible. It must be coherent. It must be explained so that people understand what's going on. You need to understand that when the greeting is given in the morning, it's not me with a big smile saying, Hello, y'all. It's God using this mouth to greet you. The benediction is not goodbye, and I hope you all have a nice, safe, happy, fun week. It's God sending you away from this place with the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit sealed upon you. It's His grace. The absolution is not me saying, you know what, uh, I, I, I understand that you're a sinner because I'm a sinner too, and I'm just going to show a little bit of mercy and compassion to try to encourage you this morning. No, it's God speaking to you saying, you're forgiven for the sake of Jesus' blood. You see, that's important to us. It's intelligible. When we understand that, it's meaningful to us. We understand that God is speaking to us and that it's our role and our responsibility to respond with words of praise, words of confession, words of faith and assurance. That means the other thing that must happen is that the word, when it is proclaimed, must be clear. This is why I ask you to take out your Bibles. This is why I have you open up to passages. This is why the sermons are in the form of arguments. So that you understand. The worst thing that could be said about a sermon is I had no idea what was being said the whole time. Now, some passages are more difficult than others, but the aim of the church when it, uh, when it preaches is to take somebody to a passage and lead them by the hand through the verses into saying, it means this. Tongues means this. Tongues means foreign language. Prophecy means that God is communicating to His church through words. See, like this. Intelligibility. That's the other principle that emerges here. Those are the concerns that undergird Paul's proclamation here in 1 Corinthians 14. And those are the concerns that must be the concerns of our church.
that we worship and we preach and we teach and we construct church life in such a way that it is intelligible, that it's understandable. And when it's intelligible and understandable, it edifies. And the result for you is strengthened in faith, strengthened to live a godly life, strengthened in your desires for for God-honoring worship. And when that happens, uh, God is glorified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and for the challenges in your word and for the clear explanation. We thank you that you would help us to meditate upon uh, your word and be strengthened and edified and built up. And as a church, uh, we would be resolved to do what you hear us for Jesus' sake. The apostle said, I received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In like manner also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a man prove himself. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he that eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment unto himself, if he discern not the Lord's body. That we then may be nourished with Christ, the true heavenly bread. Let us not cling with our hearts unto the external bread and wine, but lift them up on high in heaven, where Christ Jesus is our advocate at the right hand of his heavenly Father, where the articles of our Christian faith direct us. And not doubting that we shall be nourished and refreshed in our souls with his body and blood, through the working of the Holy Spirit, as truly as we receive the bread and drink in remembrance of him. You are invited now to come to the table of the Lord.